Hi, Liz. It's so good to see you again. Hi, Peter. It's good to see you too. I think one of the one of the positive sort of aspects of this is going to be just being in regular conversation with you. I really enjoyed last time, and we're gonna kind of take turns asking one another questions from episode to episode. And so I've got a number of questions、um, that I want to send your way, and really looking forward to the conversation. But how are you? How are you doing this morning? How are you entering into this time? Um, that's a great question. I am entering very tired. But I am glad for the opportunity to have this conversation with you because, as you said, like it's like this that that podcasting cliche like you have a podcast to, like they give you opportunities for regular check ins with people you like talking to and so、uh, yeah. our last episode was a joy so I'm glad that we get to do this today. Yeah, and we have really good meaty like meaningful content to work with and、mm-hmm. so.、Um, Yeah, and so just for、uh, for the sake of everyone being on the same page, this month we are we're in the month of October. Our theme is the inward journey, and there's kind of different ways that we're trying to、um, enter into that topic. But our main text for the month is Cole Arthur Riley's book,、um, beautiful new book, This、mm-hmm. Here Flesh,、mm-hmm. Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. And、um, and she's also、uh, we also have additional readings accompanying、um, the reading of this book. And I also wanted to take the opportunity to in this conversation、um, to ask you some questions that would help the audience get to know you a little bit better too. And so I I really hope that we can、um, intermingle the questions with、um, just reflections on your own journey. Um, but、uh, does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, okay. So as long as you're okay, Peter, with sometimes me volleying those questions back to you, I'm totally good. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So this would be a this would be a, be a dialogue. Yes.、Um, but one of the first things that she says in the preface, and so before the book even begins, and、um, some really she sets the context, and she's so good about just being aware of her. Her place in the world, her social location, and making observations. She's so attentive in that way, and also the journey that she's been on. So one of the things that she says is,、um, this is on page nine in the preface, and so this is in the Roman numeral nine.、Um, I used to think that Christian contemplation was reserved for white men. Hmm. Who leave copies of C.S. Lewis letters strewn about and know a great deal about coffee and beard oils? <laughs> If this is you, there is room for you here. So she's not throwing them under the bus,、mm-hmm. but she also wants to、um, carve out space for herself. But I am interested in reclaiming a contemplation that is not exclusive to whiteness, intellectualism, ableism, or mere hobby. As a black woman, I am disinterested in any call to spirituality that divorces my mind from my body, voice, or people. And there's so much of、uh, our experience. I also just say, speak for myself. My experience experience of Christianity is one that drives me into solitude, into isolation.、Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think part of what she's doing is she's trying to reclaim <clears throat> her connection to、um, a larger community. And also、um, pay attention to the ways in which she has been tethered to a community that didn't really embrace her fully, perhaps.、Mm. And so the question for you is, you know, I think your own journey, Liz, has been a process of awakening to the whiteness of a Christian faith,
-hmm. that you came to later in life. And so, and I think this was apart from your family, like you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Correct. Correct. Um, so this is this is a common experience. We're we're, uh, we're inculcated into and baptized into literally sometimes into a community that is very foreign to us and that mm -hmm. treat us um, as foreigners, maybe sometimes even foreign objects. And so I wonder if you would mind sharing about what that journey has been like for you, um, and as you reflect on even this line from from Cole Arthur Riley. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So um, I did become a Christian later in life, quote unquote, although now that I'm almost 40, becoming a Christian at 15 still sounds like, you know, it, it, it's very different. I think of it very different now than I did when, when I was 25, for example. But um, I was born to nominally religious parents. Mm. My mom is Catholic. My dad is Buddhist spirituality and religion were really not things we talked about in our home, which is very common for Chinese and Taiwanese families. I think in terms, if you look at all the demographics of different ethnic groups, at least Asian ethnic groups specifically, Chinese and Taiwanese people are among the least religious. Uh, the biggest religious identification is none, um, which I think is quite different from other, uh, specifically Korean um spirituality and religion in the U.S., oh, yeah. at least. So, um, you know, I had this friend, my one Asian-American friend invited me to church with her in fourth grade, which like kind of started setting the foundation. I got some of the basic vocabulary about mm -hmm. Jesus and church. Um, and I only went with her for about a year, but I feel like that was kind of the beginning of a journey for me um, where I started just asking a lot of questions about life and what happens when we die and the only resources that i had were the ones that i had received at this church so like you know i i had like a precious moments bible that i started reading i started praying like it, i was like trying to t i was taking these things that i i knew were supposed to be helpful and like trying to make sense of them and try to trying to use them with no actual guidance because my parents were not religious people and i wasn't close enough to any other adults to ask really so mm. um you know, I was doing these things. I was reading the Bible. I was praying, but like none of it, there are still some things that didn't make sense to me. So like it was before the internet too. So I was like, you know, okay, maybe one day when I'm like 16 and I can drive, I can like drive myself to church um, and like ask somebody some questions, but which one do I go to? There's so many different kinds. So I was like in my dictionary looking up denominations. I was like cold calling churches. Like I just had nowhere to go. And so when she invited me to her new church when I was in 10th grade, I was like, oh, my God, yes, like this is what I need. I need like someone to help me figure this out. And this was a very different experience, like whereas the first one had been like, you know, old school, white pastor, piano, like musty building. This one was like the high school ministry of a like Chinese and Taiwanese church that was full of other Asian American high school, Taiwanese American high schoolers specifically. Um, and like a very cool Chinese Canadian pastor, like that, that experience like changed my life. Like all of a sudden mm. having a context in a community in which I was normal was everything because up to that point I'd grown up in predominantly white spaces. So, um, there was like, you know, the kind of like racial and ethnic identity piece of this journey, I think is equally, honestly, equally formative yeah. for, for me. Um, Fun. but really more importantly for me is that like, 
this was finally a community of people where I felt like I belonged mm. and that belonging kept me present to like, and gave me opportunities to ask questions and to like, yeah, just make sense of all of these like disparate things that I had been reading. And I, it was, yeah, it was life changing. So that's how it started. Um, but you know, as you know, Peter, like Asian American evangelicalism is a very colonized kind of Hmm. Christianity. It's basically by and large, like it's basically just white evangel white American evangelicalism, maybe in a different language with different food after the service. But like the theology is very like, you know, this the resources and texts and Sunday school curriculum and books, like it's all stuff you could get from like, I don't know. But like all of like all of the curriculum and all of the books and all of the references were all these like white male pastors yeah. right like the pipers mm-hmm. and the tim kellers and the john MacArthur's. um mm-hmm. you know our pastors were trained at these like predominantly white seminaries um i definitely saw god as a white man with a beard who was watching everything i did and so it took many 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 years of unlearning um to not see god as white yeah that's such a really i mean that is such a good point because i think about my seminary experience i'm hard pressed to think of any um uh, author we read that was not a white male european i'm sure Mm -hmm. there were a few um but i can't think of any um well i shouldn't even say that i don't know that i that I can be sure that there were a few. Yeah, I can't. Um, (laughs) I definitely cannot. And you went to seminary too. Yeah, I did. I later went to seminary myself where I was exposed like here and there to other schools of Mm -hmm. thought. But even then that was like, it was the the late aughts. And so there was some awareness, like some kind of like token throwing in of other voices. But I think, I feel like it's a very different, only now I, I think our seminary is really waking up to the fact that of like of how um how normative whiteness is in their walls and i don't i don't mm-hmm. even think most seminaries are waking up to that so yeah. yeah it's really hard because there there are the obligatory um kind of uh, nods to inclusion yes but to what extent are you willing to gut the whole system and put at the very core of your curriculum um, and of your theological sort of understanding or hierarchy, like to what extent are you willing to question all of that? Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really hard to imagine institutions taking the risk to do that work. So I'm really yeah. curious about this. So you began to understand how the Christian faith that you had committed your life to and where you were organizing your life around this faith you began at some point to recognize the whiteness of um, this system of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say more about that? What was that like and how? Like, what were some of the steps involved there? I wish I could articulate exactly when this started. I feel like it started somewhat in seminary. So just to like yeah. give the quick like, you know, timeline. Um, yeah. I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad where I met you, Peter. I studied psychology. And then after graduation, I went to the Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena to get a PhD in clinical psychology. 
But along the way, you also get a master's degree in theology, which is like a fun bonus. Um, and you also take classes on the integration of psychology and theology, which was, was something I was very interested in, having studied in undergrad at a you know world class in a world class psychology department, but one that I could where like I could not talk about my faith or integrate it at all, and I just wanting a space where I could have those conversations. So um, I think it was in the discussion in my psychology classes around things like indigenous psychology, the realization, mm -hmm. the growing realization that psychology is a practice that's based very much on white Western values. And what yeah. does it look like to, you know, incorporate indigenous psychologies? What does it look like to... Um, develop new psychologies that are maybe not like white normative and are specific to individual cultures and ethnic groups. Um, and I think it was in that process of deconstructing psychology that I started to realize that like my theology was also equally based in this white, very mm -hmm. Western context. Um, that every, as I said earlier, every book I'd ever read had been by like a white man, a, a few women, I guess, but mostly mm -hmm. men. Um, and just trying to figure out what an Asian American spirituality looked like. But the profound difficulty was that it just felt like stepping into a vacuum, right? Because yeah. like there, there were no prominent Asian American theologians at the time. I'm honestly still hard pressed to think of any mm -hmm. off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Like every Asian American pastor I'd ever met had been formed by the same white pastors that we've been talking about. Um, all the music we sang was the same music that like from Hillsong or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And I think that that has been the real struggle for me because I do not feel at home in. I mean, it's it's kind of it kind of mirrors the Asian American like sh identity struggle overall where like I do. I did not feel at home with Asian theologies and I didn't feel like they spoke to my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I also did not feel that these like white American theologies yeah. spoke to mine either. And so yeah. um, I still find myself trying to think about and work through like what an Asian American, like what does a decolonized Asian American spirituality mm. look like? Yeah. And that's still an ongoing question. Yeah. For me. It's a profoundly important question, but one to which um, there aren't ready-made answers. There's mm -hmm. no textbook for this. There might be some, but you, you begin to realize even even some of the guides um, that are readily available are people who are coming out of these white institutions. And so even if they're earnest in the work that they're doing, they're spending so much time trying to um, you know uh, disentangle themselves, right? Yeah, if they're conscious of it at all. So it's one thing to uh, try and um, leave or differentiate yourself from the whiteness of the faith that you um, had given your life to. It's a mm -hmm. whole nother thing to mm, explore and to understand, to discover your Asian American identity. And, and some of this is the, the challenge that you've already spoken about. But you've done, I, I don't know if you would say this, so I'll say this for you. Like You've done some groundbreaking pioneering work in um, in bringing together or trying to articulate a way forward 
for Asian Americans who um, who identify with more progressive or uh, a more open posture towards the questions and challenges of our time. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what that journey has been like, and um, and what you know? There are people probably listening who are. Uh, in the early stages of that journey, what advice would you have to them or to a younger, um, to a younger you? Hmm. Oh God, that's like such an interesting question. I'll start with the the first part of the question. Um, so you're incredibly God. What such generous words, Peter? Um, I co-founded a an organization called Progressive Asian American Christians with our colleague. Lydia Shu, who you pastored with at City Church San Francisco. I met at a talk that you invited me to give at City Church. Um, so you are truly the, the reason this all started. Um, but basically both of us, I think, you know, we were really excited to meet another Asian American Christian who identified as progressive, like theologically and socially mm-hmm. and politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the first time we had coffee, that was something we talked about. And I told her that I was writing this piece called The Loneliness of the Progressive Asian American Christian about how when you hold all these identities and you're looking for a faith community, you often have to choose between different parts of your identity, right? You can choose mm-hmm. a community that matches your racial and ethnic background, but that's like very conservative and doesn't match your theology or values or you can choose a community that matches your theology and values but like you're the only asian person there Mm -hmm. um and she said oh that's so funny i just started this facebook group called progressive Mm. asian american christians um but like you know it's like very very new like it's like and i uh i the the coincidence of it all was remarkable Um, but basically, you know, when I wrote, when I finished writing this piece, I asked her if I could tag this group at the, at the bottom and, you know, we would just like see what happened and lo and behold, people read the piece and like started showing up like by the dozens, by the thousands eventually. So, um, what I found is that like a lot of people I think are in the same boat, especially we started this organization like at the end of 2016. So it was like right on the heels Mm. of the Trump election. I think so many people were becoming very jaded with their communities and how they, um, if not embraced, like did not denounce what was happening. Um, And I found that, uh, yeah, just like so many people wanted a space to ask questions and talk about justice and talk about feminism and talk about queer identity and so many other things um, and just did not have spaces to do that in their home communities. So um, this is one of the few examples where I think like the internet has actually been a real gift because it's allowed us to connect in ways that we were not previously able to with our like IRL communities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think what I've learned along the way is that spirituality and is really something that is like best done in community. Yeah. And I think having a community of people just like unlocked cool opportunities for people to just like, again, like ask questions and create things and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just like build like life sustaining friendships and relationships. So I think that's the big takeaway. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of smaller ones. Like the internet is a very difficult place to be curating community amongst mm-hmm. people who don't know each other in real life. Um, though yeah. I think that's the secondary lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned that like so much of the work, I think of like, you know, community organizing or whatever you want to call this is just f- creating the space for people to show up. Cause people, mm-hmm. a lot of people want so like a lot of people want community, but they just need someone to tell them where to go and where to show up. And so I think that that's like a, a really big part of the work is just creating yeah. the space and then yeah. things tend to happen on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would I give my younger self? God, my younger self would not have been receptive to any advice. <laughs> so that's really hard to say. And I think my younger self would also like, I don't, I mean, I don't think she would approve of anything <laughs> that I believe now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like she would probably dismiss me as a heretic. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like what I really loved initially about Christianity or the brand of Christianity that I fell into was that like it gave me answers yeah. for questions that I had. And all I have done since then is realize mm-hmm. that I only have more questions. All I've done is generate mm-hmm. more questions. Um, and so, I don't know, I probably would have sent her to therapy and just like hoped that she could learn how to like sit in just the ambiguity and the gray of life, because I think I really wanted things to be black and white early on. And, you know, as I've grown up, as I've become a therapist, as I've worked with so many people in both like kind of pastoral and therapeutic settings, like the more I realize that like life is just a lot yeah. of gray, very few things are black mm-hmm. and white. Yeah. And um, learning how to be comfortable in that is like, right. like such a big part of um, life growing yeah. up, becoming an adult. Yeah. So. I mean, can we just talk about that for a moment? Because I think questions get such short shrift. Mm-hmm. Um, we feel like, well, if all I have are questions, I don't have much to offer. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would wager that you are asking questions that were unimaginable to a younger um, version of you. Totally. And the questions themselves have so much power, have so much beauty, even if you don't have the answer, mm-hmm. the answers. Um, and it's it's the pathway to new relationships and to new ways of um, showing up in the world. And so mm-hmm. I think questions are underrated. And yeah. I think the questions are um, so profoundly beautiful and powerful uh, in shaping us, the spiritual questions and, and all the questions that we bring to every day of our lives. And so mm-hmm. um, I love that answer. Thank you, Liz. Uh, I love your reflections on how uh, I think that's that's the way it should be, that we're asking deeper and better questions uh, than we were capable of. Before. Yeah, I, I really love that. I really like that. Um, like kind of the essence of what you just said, that like growing up is about asking better and deeper questions, because I think that so mm-hmm. many of us grow up with this idea that like growing up is about getting answers to all of your questions. Um, and then you're done and then you're done learning and that's it. And you know, all the things and you get to teach the next generation what the answers are. Right. But like, um, that's, that's not at all been my experience. My experience is just that like, you know, old answers stop working and then Uh. we get, we get new, we make sense of things in new ways and get new answers. Then eventually we outgrow those too. And so, um, it's just like this constant journey of, yeah. asking new questions, re-asking old questions, 
Um, and I think I used to have, you know, like not having a, an answer, I think, can be a very scary place mm-hmm. to be, right? It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. It can cause a lot of anxiety. Right. And um, I think that for me, like learning how to be comfortable not knowing the answer yeah. and that I might never know the answer and that we just have to do mm-hmm. the best we can with what we, mm-hmm. <laughs> to throw that back from to last week, to our last recording. Yeah. Um, we just have to do the best we can with like, with, with the understanding that we have now, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. But I think that learning to be comfortable with that is like a big part of maturing and growing. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, it's hard because of what you mentioned is like, that's the path that we have come to expect. Like you will grow mm-hmm. old and you will learn uh, accumulated answers and then mm-hmm. you'll be able to use those answers to teach others. And that mm-hmm. will be what brings you worth and value and uh, allow you to um to prosper in yeah. later stages of your life. And so or flourish. Mm-hmm. And so how do you flourish in a later stage of life when when that template has been pulled out from under you and you don't have uh, that pathway anymore? I think that's it raises all kinds of um, amazingly beautiful and um, and dangerous questions. Yeah. Um, yes. And that's exactly like, I love that, like, because. I think to so many people, the questions are dangerous, right? Like they threaten our yes. sense of security and safety in the world because they challenge our worldviews. I think a lot of like, you know, people in positions of authority are threatened by questions because it threatens their power. Um, mm-hmm. Dangerous questions. I think that's exactly yeah. how they feel a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it feels easier and safer, I think, just to like put a bow on it. Yeah. find some like pat satisfactory answer and like not not examine it again mm-hmm. yeah but and i wonder i mean i hadn't planned on going here but i wonder if we need to expand our imagination to the point where we're actually asking ourselves how do we care for those people who are intrepid enough to ask those questions and take the lumps and mm. um and uh, endure the consequences of uh, venturing out in that way and there aren't easy or clear answers, but I think I, I just wonder if um, like we could be well served by um, thinking about how we care for people who um, yeah who move out in those uh, risky directions. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I I I love that question because like I feel like so often, especially in like I mean a lot of church spaces, like the way that those folks are treated is just to be silenced mm-hmm. right like yeah uh, to be yeah. told that they're out of order um mm-hmm. and they should put their questions away so in addition to mm-hmm. like having their questions they're then kind of like ostracized and traumatized in yeah. that way and so like how how do yeah. we how do how we care for these folks i think is like yeah god such a good question it's such a good question mm-hmm. and like allowing yeah. and kind of going back to our conversation with danielle from a few episodes ago like how do we allow them to have, you know, how do we allow the possibility that like their question might lead them in a different direction than, you know, mm-hmm. it might lead them away from this community. Like how do we, yeah. how do we like provide space and care? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know either, but I think maybe if we can put those questions before ourselves, the collective brilliance of our communities, 
um, can begin to trace out next steps in mm. those directions. And one of the things I really appreciate about um, Cole Arthur Riley's book, again, is without like explicitly saying so, how intergenerational her spiritual perspective is. And mm -hmm. she just talks a lot about her, her grandmother, her dad, her relationship to her family members, and how much she has learned from them. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the lessons that she learned early on from her father is that spirituality is a tool of survival, and mm. she embraces that reality. And here's what she says. She says, from the womb, we must repeat with, reg with regularity that to love ourselves is to survive. To survive. I believe that is what my father wanted for me, and I knew I would so desperately need a tool for survival, the truth of my dignity named like a mercy new each morning. And then later in the book, uh, she writes, my body as spectacle, as token, has become very familiar to me. There is a feverish cannibalism for black bodies. I won't be blamed for what I did to survive it. I mean, such a, a, a powerful um, reflection there on her journey. And I recognize that the Black experience is very different from the Asian American experience. But uh, I think there are some commonalities here. And so I wonder if you could reflect on what it, what it has meant for you. Like, maybe the, if there isn't a cannibalism in the same way for Asian Americans, there is a kind of fetishization mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, of Asian bodies perhaps, uh, maybe a different way to put it. Um, and then this idea of assimilation, I think she's getting at some of that um, and the code switching that uh, people of color are often doing to survive uh, in spaces that are not, in, uh, that are not hospitable to them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could reflect on what your experience has been like. And, um, and yeah, like as you, as you reflect back, what are some, some lessons you've learned along the way I think, so before I get into those specific questions, I think one thing I really appreciate about Cole Arthur Riley's writing and worldview is that like for her, spirituality is so deeply embodied. It cannot be mm -hmm. divorced from the body that she is in. Yeah. And I just really appreciate that because I grew up in this, you know, I in this, in, in the specific Christian spaces that I grew up in, there was such a duality, right? This like body spirit duality mm -hmm. where like the spirit was good and the body was bad and the body was this like bad thing that had to be tamed where all of our badness lived. Um, but the mm -hmm. reality is that we're all animated bodies, right? And everything mm -hmm. we experience is the result of our body's abilities to sense and perceive and think and how other people experience us is like so deeply rooted in how our bodies present and just like her ability to like integrate like to present this integrated picture of body and soul spirit like spirituality i i really appreciate and i think it's like a balm <laughs> to the ways in which mm. that like i feel like you know centuries of christendom has like tried to to separate those things when the reality is that like we can't separate those things and her experience yeah. of spirituality cannot be separated from the fact that she's a black woman. And my experience of spirituality cannot be separated from the fact that I'm an Asian American woman. Yeah. Um, so I just, I really appreciate how she lays all that out. Um, to get to your questions specifically, 
it's really hard for me to disentangle or like to kind of like mm-hmm. tease out what in my story is to, to tease out this particular element of my story because I came in into awareness of myself as an Asian American at the same time that I came in into an awareness of myself as an evangelical or as I, as I became mm. evangelical. So um, I was told immediately as an evangelical that my body was bad. My female body was bad and had to be covered and hidden and like I had to be ashamed of it. And so I feel mm-hmm. like... Um, I definitely experienced and still experience the the fetishization of Asian women that every that all Asian women feel and experience in some way. Mm -hmm. But I also Mm -hmm. feel like layered on top of that, literally on top of that, (laughs) was like this like Mm -hmm. like the ways in which that like evangelicalism told me that I had to like hide everything about my body. So I think that um, yeah, I just I feel it's very difficult for me to to isolate like you know my asian american experience of my body you know i can't separate that mm-hmm. from from my evangelical mm-hmm. one yeah. but i i ha- i can say though that like my asian american face has like completely affected how like other people experience me um mm. you know in in ways that have benefited me in ways that have not right so obviously mm-hmm. there's like the immediate othering that happens and like the immediate assumption from so many people that i'm a foreigner that i don't belong um but I also feel like, you know, I've inhabited largely academic spaces and I feel like this Asian American face has also mm-hmm. made people assume that I'm smart, that I'm hardworking, mm-hmm. um, that I'm credible, that uh, I know what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, when in, in an era when people are waking up to, um, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion as a concern and people mm-hmm. suddenly care. Um, I think that a lot of times people see my face as like a safe person of color, right? Like I'm an yeah. Asian American yeah. woman. I'm not going to rock the boat too much. Yeah. I can provide the diversity people are looking for without being threatening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, they're they're wrong, but I, yeah. um, I I think that I have an opportunity because of this face to like introduce ideas that like um, some of my other friends who are say black men or you know Latinx mm-hmm. women like don't necessarily like they don't get the invitations necessarily because their ideas or faces or bodies can be seen as too threatening. But, you know, I, I, I come in this like placid little vessel that like people assume is going to be like quiet and non-threatening. And then I can deliver those same messages um, that other people don't get the chance to. So those are some muddled thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that um, the message of evangelicalism about your body, it plays right into the hands of, you know, if women are supposed to uh, cover up and hide their bodies. It's also this notion, oftentimes the invisibilization of Asian Americans, mm. the, the kind of erasure that I think yeah. so many Asian Americans experience, like they reinforced each other, yes. it sounds like for 100%. you. And that's a that's a double whammy that you had to, to work through. And it just sounds so tremendously hard. As I think about that, I just, I just wonder at the ways that you've been able to navigate through the world because um, to me, I'm sure it's easier said than done or it's, it's much harder on the inside in terms of the work that you're doing. 
Um, but it sounds like you've you've uh, really uh, managed to do well uh, overcoming some of those barriers. Um, one related question I have with this, like one of the things that mystifies me about you is you are um, a person who, um, and I'm thinking about the chapter on place in Cole Arthur Riley's book where she talks about place um, has always been the thing that made us and mm. place is so formative. Mm -hmm. And you are a person who grew up in Michigan mm -hmm. and then lived for a time in California mm -hmm. and... Um, and then you went back. I sure like, did. Why did you go back? And <laughs> what has that experience been like? And how, I, like, I would love to hear you reflect on on that. I know that you you loved California, so it wasn't mm -hmm. like you were wanting to, um, to flee a place you didn't like. Um, but I'm really curious to hear how has, how has being back in Michigan for a second time mm -hmm. uh, shaped uh, your identity and your spirituality? Mm. Oh, God, this is such a good, complex, layered question. Um, because, yeah, I had truly no intention of ever returning, you know, especially mm -hmm. being in California and being Asian American. Like, California is the promised land. It's where mm -hmm. a third of Asians in America live. The food mm -hmm. is amazing. The weather's great. Um, but it was this experience of bringing a child into the world where I was suddenly like, Oh, this, this, this is why people leave the coasts for their boring hometowns. Mm. I get it. I get the boomerang effect mm. now. Um, it was really the absence of family that, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, mm. on a practical level yeah. was difficult. But just like realizing that like I wanted my spouse and I wanted our children to have connections and relationships with our families of origin that were just going to be much harder if we stayed in California. Mm -hmm. So that was mm -hmm. the primary thing that drove us out. I mean, a very mm -hmm. close second is the fact that like Cal San Francisco is just an obscenely expensive place to live. So if we wanted to have the like rich, full lives that we dreamed of in terms of like community and like you know, friends who weren't constantly leaving because they were getting priced mm -hmm. out and like even ourselves feeling having like one mm -hmm. foot out the door at all times because we didn't know if we could actually afford to live there. Like we had to go somewhere else. And so yeah. um, we moved to Michigan almost four years ago. And like, I love it. I think our quality yeah. of life is so much better here than it is in California. Uh, and, you know, um, I say that it's easy to say that now because it's fall and like fall is like the best time to be in Michigan. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I'm like looking at all these trees yeah. changing color outside my window. Um, right. Wait till March. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. in March. yeah. In March, I'm going to be like, I, I question all my life decisions in March, but like, I feel, I feel deeply connected to my family. I feel that mm. my, my child, my, my children have a beautiful relationship with like both sets of their grandparents that is facilitated mm. by the fact that we can see them so much more, more often. Um, we have an amazing community of people that is facilitated by the fact that like they can afford to stay here. Uh, yeah. The cost of living is such that people can like buy mm -hmm. homes and build roots. And, you know, um, I ha uh, and we have a life, you know, because the cost of living is reasonable. Like we can we can like do fun adventures and experience with our children. And like, I don't, we just have more freedom to create the life we want. And so yeah. I feel like this is something that often gets lost in the like, you know, the glamorization mm -hmm. of like the coastal cities, which don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. I loved, I feel so grateful that I got to live there 
um, when I was young and childless, especially. But like now the priorities in my life are, you know, I want Mm. family. I want community. I want this like rich and full life. And like that is possible Mm. in Michigan in a way that it was not in California. So, yeah. Um, And then the funny thing about being Asian American in this particular town. So I live in a city that's 17 percent Asian. Um, which is significantly better than where I grew up. Oh, that would yeah. have been really tough. I feel like 17%, mm-hmm. it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I would love more, but like it's a pretty good number in that there are enough Asian Americans here that I can find folks readily. There's plenty of us yeah. here, but not yeah. so many that we don't immediately know our need for each other upon yeah. seeing each other, you know? So like... Yeah. Anytime yeah. I meet another person of color in town, yeah. we're like a third total of the of the population. Mm-hmm. Like I immediately get their number. We immediately yeah. make plans to hang out <laughs> because that's like reason enough to to like make a connection with somebody yeah. here. Whereas in California, like if I met another Asian, like being Asian is not yeah. enough of a reason to like get somebody's number in California. Yeah. Um, right. So in some ways, it's created these circumstances in which it's like actually been pretty easy to like build a community mm. because like people yeah. are eager for, especially people of color are eager for community. So yeah. um, that's a long answer to your question, but that is no. Why. I love the answer. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, Ann Arbor is um, is different from South Bend, Indiana, for sure, or Grand Rapids, even. Yeah, right, which are two other cities that um, that we lived in when we were in Michigan or in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I love what you're saying about both the uh, experience of diversity uh, and uh, and also the sense of connectedness to family. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Yeah. Um, I think about when we moved to South Bend, I remember we were we were driving out of our neighborhood to go grocery shopping and we um, we uh, found ourselves ourselves craning our necks to look over at Asian Americans who had just walked by on the sidewalk. It's like, uh-huh. oh, my goodness, what are they doing here? <laughs> are they lost? <laughs> and we were like, oh, we have become those people. <laughs> yeah. God. God. Yeah. Um, I I. God, I, I'm keeping an eye on our time. And like, I feel like I want to throw every single one of the questions you've asked me back at you. So I'm going to start. I'm just I'm going to ask the one that I think is most important. So I feel like you and I are both Asian American, but we have like very different experiences of Christianity mm-hmm. in that like you, your dad is a pastor. Like you grew up very, very churched, very deeply yes. embedded in a Korean church. But I feel like a lot of our experiences of like, I don't know. I feel like in some ways our journeys have been somewhat similar and like brought us to similar places so i guess like i'm curious like how like what was your like conception of like god and spirituality like in the beginning and like how do you feel Mm. like it has evolved to the place where you how did you get to where you are now yeah i think so one of the blessings in disguise for me um was that my experience of Christianity was so dysfunctional Mm. that I knew I had to ask deeper questions. Mm. And so I wasn't so starry-eyed about my experience in the Korean immigrant immigrant church Mm -hmm. that I wanted to, you know, uh, stay there uh, for the rest of my life Mm. and to replicate it. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew that interrogation was necessary. And Mm -hmm. so I think that was was, uh, truly a source of... um, 
of help for me, mm-hmm. um, recognizing that I'm going to have to ask hard questions. Yeah. And there's uh, layers here that I have to peel away to really understand or to arrive at some some semblance of health. And um, and so that, that helped. And then I think being in the Midwest helped a lot too hmm. uh, because I wasn't in sort of those uh, automatically found, found myself in culturally Asian American spaces. Hmm. And so I found myself always having to cross between spaces pre- predominantly in in white institutions having to um reckon with my asian american identity and so i just it was a matter of survival and this is mm-hmm. what i love about what cole arthur riley says is that for some people she actually says this contemplation is a hobby for many people it really is it's like it's mm-hmm. the thing that they do after watching tv it's like oh my, my life feels a little bit empty so let me pray and I feel a little bit better now. So I've got I've got my you know my my fill of uh, of God for today, and it's sort of it, it gives meaning to my life, which is not a horrible thing, mm-hmm. but it's a whole another thing when you re- recognize that your spirituality is a thing that's going going to help you get to the next day, hmm. and it becomes a, a tool of survival. So, yeah. That's yeah. that's one thing that comes to mind. And related to that, I mean, do you have time for one more question? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, another part of, I mean, I love all of your reflections here and I think it kind of, um, well, yeah, I mean, this is part of the Asian American experience in the Midwest perhaps, but I think it's everywhere, uh, for people of color. So this is on page 54 of the book. Uh, she writes, it makes me uncomfortable because I've grown used to an existence that requires, I prove every part of me but I'm learning a slow embrace of mystery, hmm. even those mysteries that reside in me. I wonder, like, so do you have some of that experience of having, like, being in spaces where you have to prove yourself? I think, again, it's a very common experience of, for people of color. And how has that, how has that experience, that dimension, shaped your spiritual journey? I don't know if I have a great answer to this question, Peter. Maybe, I mean, maybe I, it's I not wish, part of your experience, right? No, maybe I, it's because... Yeah, I'm like, I wish someone else who has who knew me, like, back in the day could, like, speak to this better, <laughs> could keep me honest yeah. on this question. Yeah. Um, because I do not feel like I've had a need to prove myself for a long mm-hmm. time, and I don't mm-hmm. know what that's about. I don't know if it's yeah. because I... Um, aging maturity <laughs> i mean that's probably i mean right? god, thank god that's like the one good yeah. thing about aging um yeah but i'm like i'm trying to interrogate this even as we're talking about it and i'm like mm-hmm. is it am i i also feel like a lot of my midwestern upbringing has f- like forced me to be able this is probably the most honest answer like um mm-hmm. i think feel like my Midwestern upbringing forced me very early to learn how to code switch in white spaces, yeah. as you were just talking about. Mm. So um, for better and for worse, yeah. and I say this to mean in ways that have benefited me and also in ways that I think that have, you know, uh, forced some like internalized racism. Like I am, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at making myself mm. palatable to white people. Uh, mm. I, you know, I can... I can speak their language. I know their jokes. I know their references. I know how to be non-threatening. I know how to be funny. You know what I mean? Like, I know how, um, and this is not intentional. This is just something that's like a skill that's been built over like years and years and years of Mm -hmm. survival. 
Um, I I feel, and and again, also benefiting from the fact that I'm Asian American, which a lot of people see as like the least threatening of the people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and a woman, so I'm also see- perceived yeah. as non-threatening in that way. So um, <clears throat> I feel like those are skills that have made it possible for me to feel comfortable in predominantly yeah. white mm-hmm. spaces and that I don't yeah. need to prove myself. I'm really intrigued by, by these reflections because I wonder, um, you know, like, to some degree, this is part of who you are. Like this is the identity that um, that has formed in your mm-hmm. life over a major, you know, number of years, and so this this is in fact you. Yeah. Right? And then to some degree, the because everyone's having to do this, everyone's having to adapt to the presence of other people around them. Mm-hmm. But then I also wonder to what degree are you collectively a part of a larger dynamic in the world, in the United States, where some of this has systemic implications and and how ought we to think about that as mm. Asian Americans? I think these are really complex questions. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It is very sobering to realize that some core mm-hmm. parts of my personality are formed around the fact, around my experiences of racism. Like that is yeah. bananas to me. Um, and you know, the fact that I'm extroverted and outgoing and I connect with people quickly, Mm -hmm. like these are all mechanisms that developed around me, um, wanting to prove to people as a child that like, I was not some like quiet, passive Asian stereotype that Mm -hmm. I didn't have an accent, um, that I, that I fit in, in this white world. Right. And I like those parts of myself, but I like those parts of myself and it is sad to me that like, what, what, what would I be like if I had not needed those survival skills? I have no way of knowing. So like that is like a, a sobering thought. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, you know, um, yeah, these parts of my personality are baked in and exactly what you said is true which is that like I do want to be part of like the dismantling of white supremacy and yeah. I feel I know where I'm allied in terms of that fight mm. um and so what does it look like to fight a system that my yeah. very personality has been adapted to like survive in you know what I mean like yeah. it's a real mm-hmm. kind of like snake eating its own tail situation Mm. Um, so yeah, these are like bigger, headier questions that I think, you know, take a long time to unpack. We are mysteries unto ourselves. Mm. And it sounds like what you're saying is there's more questions we have to unpack. More questions. <laughs> so Only more questions. This isn't going to be the last conversation we have about these matters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really struck by these words, um, uh, from Cole to Riley, maybe as a way to close our time, because I think it's, uh, it's helpful for spurring uh, even deeper reflection to um, what you've just shared. Uh, She writes, but I am learning a slow embrace of mystery, even those mysteries that reside in me. Hmm. Thank you for being willing to delve into some of the mysteries of your own life and uh, and the aspects of your journey that have shaped you. Uh, This has been a really, really uh, meaningful conversation for me. I feel like you opened uh, a window into into your heart and into your life, and I'm really grateful for that. Thanks, Liz. 
Thanks for the very thoughtful and generous questions. Um, yeah, and I'm excited to keep unpacking these things with you.